Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes on the first day of Daylight Saving Time. Did I call it Daylight Savings Time in my newsletter? In any case, uh, thanks to this particular law, I was able to wake up in the dark once again. It was, it was just getting to the point where it was light when I was getting up, so at least for a few weeks we're back in the dark. So thank, thanks for that. I used to actually go on a rant about this, what a terrible thing it was to go back and forth. But now, well, actually, you know what it feels like? It feels like one of those old boring debates, those things we used to debate that didn't have that 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 cloud of existential dread over them. Uh, so our guest today is, in fact, this is our first first time guest, uh, Jessica Hoosman, who is the editorial director of VoteBeat. Jessica, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It is kind of good to have old, boring things to debate. You notice that? I mean, it's like, hey, let's debate daylight savings time. It's sort of like, let's debate whether we should have school uniforms. It's like the 1990s all over again, where you don't have that that <laughs> your, that clench in the pit of your stomach <laughs> when you when you have the debate. You don't have that feeling like, hey, could we just? Or, or here's the other boring debate. You and I may disagree with it, about this, but I think it's a boring. Uh, it's boring to debate whether or not the president should have a, a press conference. I mean, he, I think he should have a press conference, but it's kind of a boring debate about it. It's not like, hey, is the president going to uh, try to invoke martial law and have a coup? I mean, this is this is a this is a good debate to have, right? Because I don't know. It's sort of like debating how do you feel about the designated hitter rule. You following me there, Jessica? I am. I am following you there. I, I, I think, um, <laughs> you know, I think that if Marco Rubio, Rubio's lasting legacy is that he did away with daylight savings time, um, I, I may change a lot of my positions. I the you know, I, I think that the press conference thing is a very it's a very silly thing to debate. I, I do think, though, that I've been frustrated with the response of people being like, why are we even talking about press conferences? Like, don't yeah. you know how bad President Trump was? And I just, I just sort of feel like if we're going to be holding all presidents to the future standard of, well, at least you're better than uh, a president who fomented an insurrection, we're going to be in the pits for a long time. But you know, we're going to be in there for a long time. It's like, OK, whatever he's done, at least it's not a coup. So that that is so there is the danger that we've permanently, you know, redefined deviancy down. Right. It's I mean, true. I mean, I, I, I hear you with the redefining deviancy down situation. I mean, I think we're going to be like it's a it's a low bar. And I'm hoping that future presidents, including, I suppose, the present president uh, hurdle that bar uh, soundly. Um, but yes, but we will we will be down with that low rung for quite a while, I imagine. So uh, speaking of like things we used to talk about 20 or 30 years ago, uh, you, you had a tweet last night that your Roomba took out your Wi-Fi. Oh now, you know what I was thinking about that? I was thinking, yeah. you know, 20 years ago, that sentence would have meant absolutely nothing. It would have been <laughs> like something from a foreign language. And yet we go, really, you have the same problem with the Roomba and the Wi-Fi. That's that. <laughs> I worry about that, too. But it's like, you know, our ourselves 20 years ago, we go, what are you what people are you talking about? Are you speaking some bizarre, ancient, medieval Scots dialect or something? <laughs> I know I was I was sitting in my I was sitting in bed watching Netflix on my TV and then all of a sudden I hear a uh, odd sucking sound and then the internet went out and I went oh. into the living room to discover that my Roomba had unplugged the Wi-Fi from the wall. So, so this, this, the sentence would be the the Roomba knocked out your Wi-Fi while you were watching Netflix. Again, a, a, a sentence yes. that would be utterly incomprehensible. To there, our... there was a lot of technology happening at once. Um, <laughs> So there you go. 
Speaking of a lot of technology happening at once, uh, my uh, senior senator from Wisconsin, you're in Texas, right? I am. Yes. Okay. So you 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 have a, you have senator problems as well. So you 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 have you you have Ted Cruz. I have Ron Johnson. Yeah. So we're kind of bookending, which is not, weird not because positions to be in. No, no, it's not. It, it's like there, there should be like an Olympics. You know, who's who's the worst senator? You know, I mean, you know, going off to Cancun and everything. By the way, Ted, speaking of Ted Cruz, really interesting. He did, does tell you something about the state of the Republican Party, that he is siding with Tucker Carlson against the military on this whole issue of do we drag the military for actually having women in combat and stuff like that? But he wrote a letter to one of the top uh, brass, uh, you know, ripping them for how dare you criticize Tucker Carlson? You shouldn't be doing all of that. Kind of an indication of where Tucker, um, where Ted Cruz thinks the 2024 primary is going to be played out, right? You got to suck up to Tucker Carlson as, as opposed to standing by the military and women in the military. Right. I mean, which is just kind of a wild thing for a, like for us to be at that place. But I also really don't know what Ted Cruz is thinking from an electoral perspective. I, like Texas is not getting any redder. Um, and, and you know, it, it just doesn't seem like a long-term winning strategy to throw yourself so hard into this base that Texas is clearly moving away from, like numerically. So I don't really know what he's got up his sleeve I, I or, or whether it's even a plan, but it, it, I don't think it will work out for him eventually. Well, I don't know. I, I I'm still puzzled by the whole let's let, let's let's now debate women in the military issue because, and I'm repeating myself now, but it did feel like you know, hey, 1993 called and it wants its issue back. I don't, I, it hasn't been a controversy, but here they are. So anyway, Ted Cruz, and you have Ted Cruz. I have uh, we, we have Ron Johnson, which is weird because at one time Ron Johnson just hated Ted Cruz. In fact, uh, he defined himself as being the not Ted Cruz. That Ted Cruz did these weird, pointless, demagogic things on the floor. He tried to shut down the government um, when he had no exit strategy. And Johnson was the guy going, hey, you know what? You're not going to accomplish anything. You need to have more votes. It just doesn't work. And he was the more responsible Tea Party guy as opposed to Cruz. And apparently he's decided, fuck it. I'm just going to go along and do that sort of thing. So uh, he keeps digging. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm I'm, I'm going to say again, I, I honestly don't know what goes on inside this guy's mind, although I have a theory about this one. As everybody by now has heard, if, if you haven't, I'm going to play something from CNN because they had a really good sort of back and forth about this. But he goes on. He's talking again about the Jan- January 6th. And every take he has is wronger than the last take. <laughs> I mean, you know, reading from the Federalists that maybe they were Antifa fronts and now he's explaining, goes on this show, the Joe Rag show or whatever, and he's trying to explain why he wasn't worried about it because these were, you know, these were upstanding, law-abiding, you know, flag-waving white people, and he w- wasn't worried about that. And he would have been really worried if they'd been like black people, you know, protesting against police shootings or stuff like that. But but given that you know these were you know kind of his people and everything, so because. I find it exhausting to talk about this, and I'm just going to admit this. I find it exhausting to have to explain Ron Johnson. Uh, I want to play the, <laughs> the, the the segment that they had. Uh, this is Anna Cabrera's show on, on CNN. Paul Begala uh, is there, and of course, our colleague Amanda Carpenter, who uh, weighs in on uh, the, the, the gaslighting that we're hearing from Wisconsin senior senators. So uh, let's play this about two-minute segment. I ask you about these comments made by Republican Senator Ron Johnson about the Capitol insurrection. Take a listen. 
I knew those are people that love this country, that uh, truly respect law enforcement, would never do anything to, to break a law. And so I wasn't concerned. Now, had the tables been turned, Joe, this could be in trouble. Had the tables been turned and President Trump won the election, and those were tens of thousands of Black Lives Matter and Antifa protesters, I might have been a little concerned. A couple things there, the obvious racism in that statement. But also, yeah, I, uh, I, I guess, was he watching a different riot than we were? Because, Paul, I didn't get from these images that this was a group of people that respect law enforcement and love this country. No, and I have to say, my friend Amanda Carpenter wrote a terrific book about this called Gaslighting, and everybody ought to read it, because that's exactly what Senator Johnson is doing here. These were not patriots. These were terrorists. A patriot is someone who loves their country, and that can take lots of forms. A terrorist is someone who wages war against their country for a political end, or against anybody. A terrorist attacks innocents for a political end. That's what these people were doing. They were insurrectionists. They were criminals. They were terrorists. And for Ron Johnson to say, you know, those terrorists, they would have gone, they would have been okay with me because I'm on their team. He sees them as kindred spirits. I think in that respect, he's telling the truth. I think he does identify with those terrorists and white supremacists. And I think that's a really shocking thing. And it is certainly not what the people of Wisconsin want out of their senator. There's also a huge contradiction here, Amanda, because Johnson is praising this crowd, but then he's also in the past tried to claim that this riot was driven by left-wing provocateurs who were, you know, trying to make Trump supporters look bad. So which is it? Yeah, listen, Ron Johnson is peddling misinformation. He's doing it in a very assertive way, a consistent way. It was only a few weeks ago at a a Senate hearing on capital security in the wake of the insurrection, he suggested that the violence was actually conducted by uh, fake Trump supporters, agent provocateurs, as you said. That, that is a lie. That is a lie. They showed what happened during the impeachment hearing. We all saw the video. Maybe he was, you know, getting a glass of milk or something. Maybe he was busy. But he knows this. This information has been presented to him. And this isn't the first time he's lied about it. In almost every public forum, he not only tries to downplay the idea that this was a violent event, but he blames the violence on Antifa, somebody else. I mean, it is really crazy, but we, we shouldn't have to parse it because it's just a plain, fat, right. ugly lie. So, Jessica, what, what do you what do you make of all of this? See, I actually slightly disagree with that. I I, I don't think I, I actually think that Ron Johnson is out there. He's he's. He's out there without a filter whatsoever. And he's basically, you know, saying, hey, these were my people. These are the kind of people that showed up at the at the rallies when I was running, you know, back in, in 2010. These these are people who, you know, look like I'm going to encounter in back in Wisconsin, back in back in Oshkosh, as opposed to those Black Lives Matter people. I mean, they now that's scary. Not these kind of people. But, you know, if you're trying to find a logical consistency to his positions, good luck. Yeah, I mean, it, no, there's there's no logical consistency here whatsoever. I mean, I, I think it's very clear that he's just sort of saying whatever it is that he thinks folks will will let him say, basically, you know, whatever the whatever he thinks his base is thinking at the time is what he's saying out loud, which, you know, given Trump's base and their shifting positions on things over the last several years is really not a, a, a solid foundation on which to base your your views. I mean, I, you know, I think that I think that this position is disingenuous all around, like all for the reasons that CNN obviously stated. But 
obviously, you know, it contradicts his past statements and, yeah. and is, is pretty racist. And I'm, I'm glad that Anna Cabrera called that for what it was. I, I just don't really understand what the downside of saying, hey, these people were wrong. They shouldn't have done that. Clearly, they were breaking laws. Clearly, they didn't have respect for police officers. I mean, one was killed. The other one was maimed. I, maybe two were killed. I, it, it, it just defies all logic. It, I, I'm sort of going around in circles trying to respond to it myself because he's going around in circles. And that's a that's a frustrating position to be in. It is. And you make, you make an important point here. This should be relatively easy for people to say what happened was absolutely horrible. It was an attack on democracy. You know, we need to prosecute it to the full extent of the law. These people were not patriots. They were not good people. They clearly were prepared to break the law. This doesn't seem to be a difficult thing for them to do. And then you pivot to whatever political point you want to make. But apparently it's all or nothing. I mean, you have to you have to eat everything on the on the, on the buffet. Hey, you know, it's if it's Wednesday, it's uh, it's Antifa. If it's uh, Thursday, well, it wasn't Antifa. But if it had been Antifa, I really would have been afraid of them because they're scary unlike these people with the Gadsden flags who kind of look like me. The thing about it is, is that, you know, Ron Johnson's looking at these headlines, you know, people saying this was pretty blatantly racist. And he's going, no, absolutely not, because he has no idea how it sounds. I mean, he really does. In, in some ways, the, the lack of a, uh, of a filter kind of exposes the way his mind works. But he he is not, a, you know, he, I don't think he actually understands at this point how crazy and how awful it sounds. Do you know what I mean here? It's, it's, people are saying, well, he's signaling because he wants his he wants his constituents. He wants his constituents to know that he's a bigot and everything. I don't think that he's thinking it through in that particular way. I don't think it works that way. I'm not either. I mean, I, I, I think that I think that he. I think that he's just running around trying to appease his base. I don't I don't know that he is actively signaling what his views are because I'm not even sure that he knows what they are. So that like it, signaling to a base would require that you have some common understanding of what that base is. And he's said so many different things that it's clear to me that he's just sort of skipping around until he finds a hot button. And and I like obviously that's a terrible way to govern. I mean it's it's also the exact same way that you see people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, is <laughs> shifting around to try and like match the political winds. And, and I think that at some point we just have to realize that these folks in fact are not governing. Like it, it's not as yeah. if Ron Johnson is writing a bunch of meaningful legislation or, or really in deeply engaging in issues, even if we disagree with his position, like he's just talking. And at some point that becomes the way in which he is governing. And so I think that it is less productive for us to try and, sort of crystal ball this situation and figure out exactly what Ron Johnson means and just assume that he means exactly what he's saying, <laughs> even if it doesn't make any sense. I like that. We, we have to arrive at that at some point, like the words that are coming out of his mouth are what he means, even if it's a fleeting moment and we should hold him account accordingly. No, I, I agree. You know, I mentioned to you right before we started the podcast that I had been watching the John Oliver uh, 20 minute segment that he devoted to Tucker Carlson and Tucker Carlson and white nationalism. And and it's really it's one of those moments where you go, OK, I knew it was bad. I didn't, you know, perhaps didn't realize it was as bad as it is, which is a phrase that I've used a lot over the last uh, four or five years. 
But one of the things that really came through, and I haven't really had a chance to digest this, so I'm just sort of free associating with you right now, Jessica, here, <laughs> is, is, is there's this tremendous investment on the right, which has been very successful in convincing people that no matter what they say or what attitudes they have, it can't be racism. No, you are not a white nationalist. There, racism is not a problem. It is not systemic. Um, the charge is always bogus, and you should resent it. And yet... And then encourage them to take these attitudes that if you take a step back and go, is that, you know, people will say, well, I just want America to look like it used to look and not be invaded by people who don't look like me, who want to have power and take my jobs and rape my women. That's not racist, is it? And John Oliver goes, yes, that is exactly what racism is. You are you have been encouraged to have these attitudes. But at the same time, given this shield by people like Tucker Carlson, not to recognize what it is that you are doing. And I thought about that listening to Ron Johnson, who would would indignantly deny that basically saying these white people attacking the Capitol, pro-Trump supporters, these were the good people, not like those Black Lives Matter protesters, because I would have been scared of them. And he's been in that world, marinating in that world where nothing that you say or do can ever be described as racist, even though it increasingly is more just raw and naked when it comes to I, I think that you're exactly right. And I think that we've also arrived at another troubling place. I mean, I, I don't know that we've arrived at it so much as have never left this station. But it, it seems to me that there is a large faction of this population that believes that it is worse to be accused of racism yes. than to actually say something racist. And and so we are we are unable to have a meaningful conversation about race in this country because we can't because there are people like Tucker Carlson and Ron Johnson who believe that that accusing someone of being racist is just far worse than the crime itself. And, and I think that that's an absurd position and, a, and an ahistorical position. Um, but it doesn't stop these folks from making it because I think that there is, there's just this whole class of people that inherently see themselves as victims and no one else as a victim. I like, you know, Tucker Carlson can, rain down hatred for journalists who've done nothing to him like Taylor Lorenz yeah. and say their names a hundred times in the hopes that their fans will go and attack her. And then as soon as someone attacks them for even basic stuff, they threaten lawsuits and talk about how unfair it is. It's, it's just, it's a level of hypocrisy that I haven't really been able to wrap my mind around. Uh, it, yeah, it is. I think you're referring also to Sean Davis from The Federalist, who was one of the guys that went on with, with Tucker Carlson to, to defend his attacks on, on Taylor Lorenz, you know, that, that, you know, journalists should not, you know, have any problem being criticized, etc. And then, of course, when there was a Twitter controversy, somebody tweeted some fake thing about him, about which I didn't even understand. I'm not going to get into the milky <laughs> thing, unless you can explain it to me. And then he, he's, he's threatening to you know, file lawsuits. So you have a complete total meltdown by the guy five minutes after he was saying, yeah, you people ought to suck it up and take it, whatever. Okay. So I want to talk to you about something substantive. Now we've, you know, been, well, this has been substantive actually. <laughs> um, because you're an expert on all of this because you're the editorial director of vote beat, which is really focused on elections and election law and election issues, right? I mean, that's that's what you do. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so I want to talk about the you know HR one and the reaction to all of this because there's been a lot of back and forth. Very clearly, two things are happening at once. Mm -hmm. You have this dramatic attack on voting rights uh, taking place at the state level, pushed by Republican legislators, and in response, um, there is this tremendous push 
for HR one, uh, which has now been passed by the House and in, in the in the Senate, um, it, it would it would require changing the filibuster rules for it to get through. But let's talk about your, your feelings about HR one because I have very mixed feelings. I mean, I think it's urgently necessary to get something done, but this is an eight hundred page. Uh, this is an 800 page bill that's got a lot of stuff in it. I mean, there's a lot of things in this bill that I think um, are, shall we say, problem problematic. So give me your take on it and the kinds of things that uh, elect that you hear election officials when, when they are, you know, are, are asked to comment on on what this would do, this dramatic change in virtually every aspect of the way we run mm-hmm. elections and handle campaign finance reform. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I I think that the mixed feelings that you have about this bill are shared by election administrators. I've talked to, oh, at this point, I think probably 50 or 60 county, state and federal election officials. Mm. And on one hand, they are thrilled that voting is finally getting its day in the sun, right? Like they, they, they are horrified by the pieces of legislation that are moving through these state houses. I mean, even Republicans have been quite outspoken about the sort of solution without a problem that these legislative that these pieces of legislation face. They, you know, the lieutenant governor for Georgia was just on Meet the Press talking about that very thing. Um, the Secretary of State for Georgia has been very outspoken about this. I, I think that that the, so on one hand, they're very excited that HR1 could address some of these issues in a substantive way that the Supreme Court has sort of disallowed over various rulings in the last decade that roll back the Voting Rights Act. But I also think that on the other hand, they are deeply frustrated about a lot of the sections of this bill. I mean, you know, I, I should say at the onset that the Senate is not going to present their version of the bill for a couple of months and very likely. And the Senate seems to be more engaged over these issues of election administration. But the House bill made it very clear that they had not consulted election administrators in any form or fashion before very prescriptively giving solutions to problems. And a lot of these solutions are literally impossible to implement. So for example, the bill would require all states and jurisdictions to have voting machines that are both paperbacked um, and certified to the Election Assistance Commission's very new standards that they only passed just a few weeks ago all by the end of 2022. Although the bill is internally inconsistent as to whether or not they want these machines in place by the start of 2022 or November of 2022, which is a long uh, amount of time to be left up in the air. But regardless, these machines probably won't even exist until 2023 and won't be in heavy circulation until well into 2025. So what kind of machine, these are machines that, that basically, that every machine has to have a paper backup? Yeah, so- It seems like a good concept. Yeah, so there. I mean, it's a it's a fantastic concept, absolutely, and and that and, and and states and counties have been moving very firmly in that direction for some time. I mean, it's not a change that anyone believes is is not necessary. But the addition of requiring those machines to be certified to VBSG 2.0, which is the voluntary voting systems and guidelines that the Election Assistance Commission puts out 
machines will not be certified to those standards until 2023 because we've got to set up the certification labs. We've got to create standards um, by which they're tested. The companies have to produce machines that can be certified to those new standards. And, and they haven't yet. I mean, it's a very slow moving, small market that the bill does not allow um, any you know, any, any flexibility for. So just saying, okay, you have to have these machines that are imaginary in place by the end of next year. Oh, and also we're installing a private right of action. So if you don't do this stuff, then your constituents can sue you. And so election administrators are sitting here being like, okay, well, you're requiring me to buy these brand new machines that's a great idea, but requiring me to buy them by 2022 is something I can't do. Right. And you're telling people that they can sue me over something that's literally impossible to get done. And certainly those court challenges probably wouldn't be successful, but the existence of them or the existence of the possibility of them, I think is alarming to election officials. And that's really not the only section of the bill that's basically impossible to achieve. I mean, it, it, it's it's just it's it's essentially a massive unfunded mandate because while it affords a hun- hundreds of millions of dollars to achieve these things, um, that's just not enough money to do a lot of the massive shifts in in election administration that they want these states to do, and and states work so differently, and the bill has not afforded any nuance um, for jurisdictions that have. A million voters versus jurisdictions that have 12, which exist in in places like Wisconsin or Texas. And so, you know, it, it's it's just a very prescriptive bill with not a lot of flexibility that kind of ignores the reality of how elections are administered in this country. And that's really disappointing um, for hundreds of elections administrators who have been waiting for a bill that clarifies voting rights and offers more funding. And then to have those wonderful things packed in with a bunch of stuff they can't achieve, I think, has been really a frustrating experience for these folks. Wouldn't it be relatively simple to change that, though, by simply saying that you have to have these these machines by 2024 rather than 2022? I mean, just change a digit? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that the Senate could absolutely fix some of these things. I think that the harder thing to fix is the funding aspect of this bill. Um, so the fun, they, this bill treats election funding in, in much the same way that previous election bills have treated election funding, which is to throw a shitload of money at it right now and then not offer any specificity as to future funding, which is just not a great way to make plans if you're a local election administrator. I mean, like getting $400 million one year and nothing the next year does not allow you to make gradual. What, what costs so much money? What, 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 when you talk about a, a massive unfunded um, mandate, yeah. what kinds of things are, are, are costly. I'm, I'm not, I'm not so, clear on that. Yeah. So for example, the bill requires that all states move to automatic voter registration right. and automatic voter registration works in a very specific way, which is that all of the databases that the election office office uses and social services office uses and the DMV uses would work together to make sure that your voter registration status is up to date. So if you present at the DMV and you get a driver's license, they can automatically register you to vote. Or you go to a social services office to apply for some benefit, they can update your address from there. You don't have to go to the elections offices. All of these databases speak to each other. But that assumes that the databases are technologically capable of speaking to each other. Just for comparison, Georgia set up a limited 
sort of AVR that mm-hmm. allowed the Department of Motor Vehicles to talk to the elections offices voter registration database. That took several years and millions and millions of dollars. This bill only affords money for elections offices to make database updates that would accommodate AVR. It provides absolutely no funding for DMVs or social services office or even the federal agencies like the Social Security Administration that would be required to participate in an AVR in the way that it's described in this bill. And so it's just, it it's not realistic. It's not, it does not afford the money that is necessary. I mean, for example, the child welfare system in Louisiana is working off of a database that was built in 1985. And so expecting a database that was built in 1985 to talk to Louisiana's voter registration system, which has been updated in the last decade, is a massive technological feat that you simply cannot accomplish with the amount of money and the timeline that is installed in this bill. This is, again, I think, did I read this correctly, that you refer to this as a Frankenstein bill, that it had been all loaded up? Was that you? Yeah, that was me. I I, I said that in in Vote Beat's recent newsletter. You know, I I think that the Democrats are trying to do a lot in this bill, and I think that they view... And, and, and this could be correct, that they I think that they see that they only have one bite at the apple to really right. get a voting bill through, given the current politics of Congress. And and that may be true. But what what has transpired is right. We have a bill that deals with everything from campaign finance to whether or not offices should use self-sealing envelopes. And, and that's just not a great way to legislate. I understand that that is the way that the federal government has legislated very frequently. Um, but I, I don't think that it, it solves any of the problems of lack of nuance or lack of real consideration on, on sort of the realistic nature of this bill. And, yeah. and, and so, I mean, it, it just seems like they took all of the bills that they haven't been able to pass on campaign finance right. and ethics and voting and just slapped it all together. I mean, there are parts of this bill um, that are just wholesale copied and pasted, essentially, from the White and Klobuchar election security bill from last year. And, and there were even problems with that bill that were not fixed when they implemented it into H.R. 1. Um, so, so certainly it is just sort of a massive conglomeration of limbs from other well, other democratic pursuits. This is this is my impression of it as well and I also agree with you that the democrats think they got one shot at this you might as well, you know, go for everything. I, I would look at it exactly the opposite way because you only get one shot and as a real crisis make sure that you have something that's going to pass. I mean, don't don't load it down with all of this stuff. I mean, there there are there there are streamlined versions of this. Um Right. That so? Do you have an idea? Do you have something you think that 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 the Senate you think that the Senate might end up with a skinnier version, a more streamlined version of of HR? I don't know if the Senate will end up with a skinnier version or not. I do think that the talk about the John Lewis bill has yeah. gotten short shrift, given how I'm surprised much, by that. Yeah, yeah, given how much there is to talk about in HR one, and 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 how much sort of political heft they've put behind it, and and perhaps that's strategic, right? Like if we talk entirely about HR one and no one notices the John Lewis bill, then maybe, um, then maybe we then maybe we can pass the John Lewis bill. I like that may be political strategy, but you know, I think the John Lewis bill is so much better than, than HR one, because one, you can actually sit down and read it. And two, it is broad enough that 
it allows for the flexibility that these jurisdictions need um, to to make sure that everyone has access to the same rights, but maybe not get to those rights in the exact same way, right? The John Lewis bill sets minimum standards for who should be allowed to vote and, and brings back a lot of the sort of neutered um, issues that that the Supreme Court has brought upon the Voting Rights Act, um, but it doesn't doesn't make prescriptive changes, right? Like HR one is is so specific that it, for example, encourages states. I think I, I I sort of hinted at this earlier, but it encourages states to adopt the use of self sealing envelopes. What problem what? that is trying to solve, I legitimately don't know because even the most disadvantaged voter has access to their own spit, and. <laughs> Yeah, like you know what I mean, and 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 also the glue in self-sealing envelopes gums up the USPS machines, and these envelopes are about thirty-five percent more expensive than the envelopes that are that folks are currently using. It affords no additional money for self-sealing envelopes, nor does it address the fact that like it would actually materially slow the USPS down. But that's the kind of detail that HR one gets to, which is not only you need to find a more efficient way to do this, but you must specifically use self-sealing envelopes. Whereas the John Lewis bill provides broad requirements that states have to figure out on their own how to meet. And I think that that's just a better way to talk about voting and elections because, you know, the rural county that I grew up in is just not the same as Madison, Wisconsin. And Madison, Wisconsin is not the same thing as Manhattan. And they're all going to, by necessity of how their people are apportioned across the city or how many people or what kind of transportation these folks take make very different decisions on how to elect, how to administer an election. And the flexibility that that requires is just not present for me in HR1. It's it's far too prescriptive. So, you know, the take a state like Arizona, where they, they're quite intent on rolling back some of the uh, voter voting access, would a if, if the John Lewis bill was passed, does it provide avenues to prevent that kind of voter uh, restriction? Yeah, I mean, because it, it would it would re it would it would sort of force the reconsideration of of preclearance with the Department of Justice that that at one time, at one point in time required states that had a history of racial discrimination. But what about a state that do, that didn't? Like I don't I don't know whether Arizona was covered by that in the past. So there, there were there were there were counties in Arizona that were covered mm-hmm. by that. But also the John Lewis bill does not assume that the same formula from the Voting Rights Act of 1965 would apply here. Um, so it, it brings back preclearance, but does not set a formula for determining which states and counties would would fall under it. And and I think that that certainly the the Supreme Court was not incorrect in that the in that the formula used to determine which states and counties had to be pre-cleared was out of date. Um, it, it, certainly there were counties that had not had a recent history of that. And then there were counties not covered under pre-clearance, for example, the state of Indiana, that have done just absurdly racist things or or classist things even um, with the way that they administer the vote. Um, so certainly that that formula was out of date. And, and the John Lewis bill does not assume that the same formula would apply. So I, I think that in the sense that that states would see better enforcement of voting standards by the federal government, the John Lewis bill would 
would deal with some of these issues. They it wouldn't deal with them as directly as HR1, but it certainly would have some, it would give the federal government more heft if they chose to pursue um, a lawsuit or, or, or preclearance against one of these states. I, I, I think the most important principle is, is, is the principle of, of non-retrogression, that if a, if a state is going to be dialing back voter access in a substantial way, they ought to have a pretty good reason to do it. There ought to be a pretty high standard not to go backwards on this. And again, this might apply to, um, to restrictions that, that are not necessarily race-based. Uh, most of the formulas in the Voting Rights Act um, tend to be race conscious. You tell me if I'm wrong about this. W- whereas, you know, per- perhaps it's time for a Voting Rights Act that just, you know, is is racially neutral. That says that, hey, if you're making it impossible for voters in northern Wisconsin, where it's 99 percent white, if, if you're cutting back their access to the, 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 the ballot box, you are also then violating voting rights. Right. I, I, I think that even in a racially neutral um, law, you would see the vast majority of, of disciplinary actions that stem from that law be applied um, to situations in which the the decision made was inherently race-based. But I, but I don't disagree with you. I mean, I think that the, the same type of enforcement could take place even if we were not specifically addressing race, even if the, even if the standard was we protect all citizens' right to vote equally, and here's what that right to vote entails specifically. Like that would be, that I think would be refreshing. I mean, I think that there is a bit of a historical misunderstanding that a lot of the country has fallen under, which is that somehow the Constitution is incredibly detailed on who should have the right to vote and who shouldn't. In fact, the Constitution is essentially silent on who gets the right to vote, except for the 13th and 14th and 15th Mm. Amendments. And if you read those amendments, literally, they're not saying that these people can't vote and these people can. They are simply assuring that a specific population can vote. It has been up to the states and has always been up to the states to shape their version of the electorate. And that has not happened linearly. I mean, I think that We have this deep misunderstanding of American history that the Constitution included some provision, or at least the founders had in mind, some provision that only white male landowners should vote. In fact, that is not the case. Um, And there were several different determinations of who the voting electorate was across the country. Certainly in a lot of states, states, it was white male landowners. But then there are states like Rhode Island that enfranchised black men in the 1840s and then was one of the last states to pass the 15th Amendment because they didn't want to allow the Irish to vote or, you know, non-citizens voted legally in the state of in the state of Arkansas well into the 1920s because there isn't even a, a provision in the Constitution that says that only U.S. citizens can vote. That is a modern interpretation of who should have access to the ballot. So, you know, we don't have a consistent understanding of who the electorate is from state to state. And states have defined that very differently in a way that has ebbed and flowed over time. And so I think having a law that simply establishes who must be able to vote, who cannot vote, and making that standard across the country would be a huge step forward in terms of easily applicable and enforceable voting rights. Now, does the John Lewis bill do that? 
The John Lewis bill doesn't do as much of that as I would like, right? Like it does not set a ton of minimum standards, but it does set standards for federal enforcement, which I think is is sort of a step forward. H.R. 1 attempts to set those minimum standards, but makes them far too strict. And the standards, even the standards that are a good idea, come with too little funding and too short of deadlines. So I think H.R. 1 can certainly be salvaged and can do all of the things that you and I are talking about. Um, And I hope that the Senate does meaningfully engage with election administrators going forward on those deadlines and on their need for funding. I, I, I have I have concerns about the way that the bill is structured that go beyond sort of its its requirements that I think are going to take the Senate longer to grapple with. Um, but but I do think that the vast majority of the problems that I have with the bill can be fixed in the Senate. So give me your sense of what's happening at the state level in places like like Georgia. Um, you know, many of these the, uh, many of these bills have been described as part of a pattern of of restricting the franchise. Um, I mean, to put it in, in the in historical context would would be the greatest restrictions on the franchise since the end of Reconstruction. Um, uh, of course, many of the supporters say well, none of what we're doing is suppressing the vote. None of them are actually restricting. We're just regularizing it. Uh, we're just, you know, shortening the number of days that the, that there's early voting, which, you know, is not that controversial, right? Um, we're just limiting things. We also are concerned about fraud. We don't want to have, we want to be able to assure that uh, that there's not, uh, you, know, uh, you know, fraudulent ballot harvesting. I mean, this is the argument. That you have. Give me your take on, on what's actually happening, how much of it is good faith, how much of it is bad faith? You know, I get the sense, and, and I've actually been told this by Republicans in Georgia and Arizona, um, that, and, and I'm sure it's happened in other places, that congressional leadership in these states, you know, the legislative leadership, has decided that anyone who wants to write a voting law that they think will make the Republican base happy can write one, regardless of whether or not it stands a chance to pass. And so what you see is these like deeply restrictive and extreme bills that they think will kind of excite their base in the same way that Ron Johnson thinks racist language will incite his base. I, and, and, and I don't know how many of those bills will end up passing in their current form. I, I do think that the introduction of those bills at a base level was a bad faith act to sort of further cynicize to the extent, I don't know that that's a word, to further make cynical yeah. uh, their their own voters. Um, I, you know, I think that even if these bills don't pass, that these legislators were willing to write them says a lot about where the Republican Party is. And also, I think even if these bills don't pass, will bolster a lot of the feelings that people have that the, that the vote was somehow flawed in 2020, even if the bill is right. bad based in bad faith. And so I, I think that that's really what it is. And I and I don't think that it's an it's an accident that you see states like Georgia and Arizona passing the most full-throated angry bills, or at least putting them up for consideration. In those states, I think that they are playing for a party of one, right? Like Trump was very angry he didn't take Georgia. He asked Arizona 
to have the results be litigated by the legislature. There is a bill in Arizona that would allow them to do exactly that. I, I don't think that that's a mistake. So so I think that these people are just sort of Ron Johnsoning, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. It, the way the politics, the Republican politics in uh, Georgia are, are certainly fascinating. Uh, you fascinating. Have the, the lieutenant governor, uh, who, who I think you referenced him, who was on Meet the Press, essentially saying, you know, I, I, I don't think that these bills you know, are solving any problem. He's refused to reside over the Senate, mm-hmm. um, just as a, as a way of, of signaling his, his disapproval of it. And of course, this comes just a couple of months after Democrats quite literally lost control of the United States Senate because Donald Trump staged a tantrum about the Georgia election. Absolutely. I mean, I, I would think this would be one of those moments where Georgia Republicans would say, OK, that was a bad idea. Um, we got blown out in those elections because of this kind of reckless rhetoric and and, and, and posturing. Um, maybe we ought not to continue down that path, but but who knows? This is the state of the Republican Party right now. I mean, it is, and I think that they face a like they're really at a crossroads here. I mean, they can go one direction and embrace the the diversity that has you know blessed the United States over the last several decades and start to transform their policies to be more palatable for voters that either have turned away from the Republican Party or have never voted Republican, or they can continue to foment their increasingly small base. And clearly, for now, a lot of Republicans have have picked that latter option. And I think that that's just sort of a losing calculation for them. I mean, if you look at the numbers in November from Florida, David Perdue got more total votes than Donald Trump, which should tell you a lot about how Republicans in Georgia view the president, right? Like they are willing to vote for down ballot, down ballot Republicans and not vote for Donald Trump, which I think is a pretty clear indication to me that they are rejecting that type of Republican politics. But the, the legislators there don't seem to be willing to admit that. No, they don't. So go, going back to voting rights and, and the state of the Republican Party, I was l- looking up this morning the original Voting Rights Act of 1965. And just to put it in some context to how the world has changed, um, that Voting Rights Act 1965 was passed by the House of Representatives on a vote of 333 to 85. Mm-hmm. It was sent to the Senate and it final passage was 79 to 18. So yeah, it's really I mean, a major it, piece of bipartisan legislation, which is na- nowadays inconceivable. Exactly. And I, I think that it's important to remember that the Voting Rights Act was renewed two separate times during the George W. Bush administration in a bipartisan way that George W. Bush then signed. And so, you know, I think that it is telling that in a period of, you know, less than a decade, the Republican Party has gone from a president who also did not win the popular vote in 2000 still admitting that there are problems that need to be solved with the voting system to a president who lost the popular vote in 2016 and tried to blame it on everything but legitimate problems of access in in the electorate and 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 so like it's it's a radically different position i i think that you know, Republicans have sort of been beating the drum on voter, voter fraud for many decades. I mean, like Hans von Spakovsky is not new to this scene, no. uh, or is Jay Christian Adams or Chris Kobach. I mean, all of these, Cleta Mitchell, like all of these people who are popping their heads up 
to, you know, say a lot about voter fraud today are the same people who were saying it 20 years ago. The difference is that the president of the United States has usually not been willing to engage in that type of rhetoric, even if their policies support it. But that obviously took a gigantic shift during the Trump administration, which, you know, made insane claims about voter fraud, established the Voter Fraud Commission and, you know, went into 2020 saying that vote by mail was rigged. It's it's just a very different bully pulpit. No, and, and it is it is very Trump centric because uh, there, there have been no massive controversies about any other election down ballot. I mean, this point's been made over and over again. But, you know, we're not still litigating the Georgia Senate races. We're not litigating you know, any, you know, well, we, there's one uh, congressional race that's still sort of hanging fire. But the fact that the only race where, where millions of Americans believe uh, that the results were tainted is the presidential race involving Donald Trump. Everybody else is kind of shrugging their shoulders and going, yeah, well, that's that's how that race turned out. Uh, Jessica Hoosman, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. And Absolutely. Uh, we, we can find your stuff on VoteBeat with what is the, uh, the what's the website? It's votebeat.org. And um, right now we are in a in a big fundraising phase. So if any of you've been inspired to donate, <laughs> there's a link to do that. But right now, most of the content that we're putting out comes out in the form of a weekly newsletter on Saturdays, which I think is is quite fun and features a election administrator who has a fun hobby as as a nice sort of uh, kind <laughs> bit of the newsletter that's fun to read and not at all sad. So uh, if, if nothing else, sign up for the newsletter to see how talented of painters and bakers and skydivers election administration uh, officials. Are this is the moment in the sun. I mean, these, these are people who have who've worked in general obscurity and lack of controversy for a very long time. And now yes. suddenly they are potential rock stars. This is their I, moment. <laughs> I, I will tell you that, you know, when I first started covering election administration, back in 2016, early 2016, when I first was at ProPublica as an intern, I didn't even know what a secretary of state was. And I feel like now people are like, that's one of the more hot button political yeah. offices. And that blows my mind. I mean, I think it's a good step forward because we're all more engaged, but it, it's, a, it's a very strange shift. It is. Jessica, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it very much. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.